0: Welcome back to the Padam Sessions. In this episode, former director of the Tate, Sir Nicholas Sirota, discusses the implications of significant shifts in the way art museums engage with artists and the public, with special reference to the evolution of the Tate. It's an enormous pleasure to be here this morning, um, not least because it gives me an opportunity to pay tribute to the way in which this museum, in a very short period of time, has made itself one of the most important museums, not just in Asia, but across um, the world. I mean, it's really astonishing when you think the museum opened formally only three years ago. And already, uh, Eugene is, for instance, a member of the Bezo group, which is this group of 50 international museum directors. And of course, you will probably remember the association with the Tate in one of the opening exhibitions, or one of the early exhibitions here um, in Singapore. So it is really a great pleasure to be here. And I'm very pleased to see everyone. I want to talk this morning a little bit about the way in which museums have changed over the past 30 years. Um, I was reminded in a conversation a moment ago about a lecture I gave in 1996, which looked at museums of modern art and the particular issues that face them in should they be telling history or should they be presenting in some depth the ideas of individual artists. Um, since I gave that lecture in 1996, a great deal has changed in the world and some of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning are, are part of that change. Um, I'm going to open with a slide, an image, which is, uh, two young people, uh, looking very hard at art in a museum. Um, Actually, they're looking at the work by Doris Salcedo, which was called Shibboleth in the Turbine Hall at Tate Modern um, in 2005. And um, I don't think that they're looking for their lost telephone, smartphones at that moment, but this is looking into, literally looking into the, what was called the crack in a work that was called Shibboleth by um, Doris Salcedo. This, I suppose, is what one thinks of as a museum, the British Museum. Um, But the, the concept of the museum is, I think, in constant evolution. And it's driven forward by a combination of curatorial vision, artistic innovation, and also, and I think this is crucial, the demands of audiences. So it's this curatorial vision, artistic innovation, and um, the demand of the audience. And both the idea of the museum and its realisation respond to the changing needs of society. The architecture of museum buildings, the attitude of curators, and the behaviour of visitors all evolve, and not always in step with each other. I want to talk briefly about how that evolution occurred rather slowly over several centuries, and then to discuss the relatively rapid changes that have taken place over the last 50 years. Some of these have been inspired by the way in which uh, curators think about collections. Others have occurred in response to the demands and challenges of artists. But I also wanted to explore, as I've just suggested, how the role of the museums has quite recently moved into new territory, as they become places where people were come to be immersed in an experience of art, to explore other cultures, and to look at issues of the contemporary world through the lens of art. So this is um, what we think of probably as a museum. And this is what the museum is today. It's actually an aerial photograph of Bankside Power Station. um, When it was still operating as a power station taken probably in about 1981. It stopped functioning as a power station in 1982, 83. And of course, in 2000 was converted to being, um, take modern, Um, but just for amusement, really. I also have this slide which shows you um, Bankside in 1746. (laughs) And if you look at the center of the slide, You see Love Lane. I think Love Lane is more or less the track that you take when you walk across the bridge, through into the Turbine Hall, and then now out onto the south side of Tate Modern, for those of you who know Tate Modern. In a moment, I will show you a slide which presents that view. But I like the idea that Tate Modern is sited on this historic site with Love Lane at its center. So, the earliest museums were really collections of curiosities. Um, But during the Enlightenment in the 18th century, they developed into institutions that had a public purpose. So, they were opening their doors to curious, as they were called, curious scholars and visitors. Um, This, of course, is the John Soane Museum in uh, London built by the architect John Soane uh, for his own collection. And it was during this latter part of the 18th century, however, that private and royal collections became public institutions run by the city or the state. So the British Museum, which was founded in 1753, you have the Louvre in 1793. And by the early 19th century, Equivalent buildings were being built in Germany and elsewhere. This is uh, Carl Friedrich Schinkel's uh, Altus Museum in, in Berlin. As is evident from this slide, in the 19th century, museums were regarded as temples containing outstanding works of art or the relics of previous eras. And many adopted really the form of Schinkel's building here, the Altus Museum in Berlin. which was a contemporary interpretation of classical Greek architecture. And you reach the museum by ascending a flight of steps, stepping away from the real world to contemplate higher ideals. The equivalent in terms of this was the museum, but the equivalent in terms of picture galleries for works of art was, for instance, again, John Soane's museum, his Dulwich Picture Gallery, um, which opened in London in 1817. In the early part of the 20th century, things began to change. Museums of modern art led the way in creating a more domestic scale, reflecting the character of the private collections and the taste for avant-garde modernist architecture adopted by those private collectors who had established new museums to show the work that established museums did not yet value. So you have, this is Daryl and Stone's Museum of Modern Art in New York, in, which opened in 1939. And then this is the interior of the same museum um, in a slightly um, fuzzy slide, but it's a, it gives you an idea about the way in which installations of art changed in the early part of the 20th century, very much more to reflect the domestic. And then After the Second World War, there was this vogue for building museums in rural conditions. This is Louisiana in Denmark, near Copenhagen. This idea about art and nature reflecting upon one another, with, of course, here Giacometti in the foreground. The next step really was here, the Pompidou Museum in in Paris, and One of the big changes in the early 70s, not just at the Pompidou, but in many other museums, was the beginning of an emphasis on really large exhibitions. They took over to a degree that was completely unexpected. I mean, an institution like the National Gallery in London didn't actually begin a programme of temporary exhibitions until 1992. I mean, it's very difficult to think back only 30 years to think of the National Gallery in London thinking that Temporary exhibitions were something that were for an exhibition hall, not for a museum. But here at the Pompidou, the you know, creating big exhibitions like Paris-Moscow, a series of exhibitions that were done by Pontus Hulten in the 1970s, really changed our view about what a major museum could do and also what a major museum could do in terms of rewriting history. So this show was one of a series that looked at Paris and its relationships with Moscow, with Berlin, with New York. And then finally in the final one series, focusing on Paris itself over a period of five or six years, a series of major exhibitions. And this was the kind of space that Piano and Rogers envisaged for the Pompidou Centre When you see it now, it's very often much more broken up into much more conventional spaces. But they had this idea of a big exhibition hall that you could walk through and uh, see art hanging on these temporary walls. I think while these changes were taking place in the early part of the 20th century um, and beyond, there was nevertheless a constant belief that the purpose of the institution was to share the fruits of scholarship by specialists with a wider public, who were therefore very privileged to come into the museum and to learn. It was very much a teacher-pupil relationship, largely passive on the part of the visitor, even when it was very rewarding and very rich experience. And so fundamentally, the, 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 the mode of museums was instruction. We are the people who know. You know nothing. Come and learn from us. I mean, I'm exaggerating, of course. But it was very much a pupil, you know, master-pupil relationship. And I think that's one of the things that has changed in museums, and I'll talk about that later. When you listen, for instance, to Alfred Barr, who was the founding director of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and he wrote in 1944, the museum's collection, as exhibited, should be for the public the authoritative indication of what the museum stands for in each of its departments. They should constitute a permanent, visible demonstration of the museum's essential programme, its scope, its canons of judgment, taste, value, its statements of principle, its declarations of faith. Um, It's almost like a scripture, the way he writes and here you see a plan of MoMA as it was, um, I think, just after the extension that was uh, created in 1984, where you see yourself walking through movement by movement, step by step, um, showing the development of modern art from essentially from the post impressionists through to the present day. Um, I think in the 80s, such certainty about the role of the collection and the principle of the single canon—that straight line telling you the sort, the single story—began to be challenged. Um, scholars in universities and academia began to question some of the exclusions, omissions, and exclusions of important voices became more obvious and the idea of a single, almost unchanging, permanent display became untenable. I think this shift in thinking could be regarded as the art historical equivalent of the advent of postmodernism in architecture, a move that gave value to forms and periods of architecture that had been neglected, even derided, and which could now be seen in a new light. And as with postmodernism, the conventional hierarchies began to break down, so that different expressions could live alongside each other and be seen as equivalent value. In museums, it became clear that the story that was being told about about modern art was essentially the modernist story with an emphasis on international abstraction rather than art that explored the human condition. I mean, I think Mondrian was concerned with the human condition and certainly with the human spirit. But figurative art was really tended to be pushed away. And works as important as this one, Max Beckmann's The Departure, um, painted um, in 1933, at the moment when he was obliged to leave, it was painted in Amsterdam, just shortly after he had left um, Germany. This is a major work, belonged to the Museum of Modern Art, I think for the first 25 years that I visited the Museum of Modern Art from the mid 70s until the early 2000s, it was always hanging in a corridor or it was hanging at the top of the stairs, that famous sort of Bauhaus stair. It was always hanging outside the galleries. It wasn't included in the galleries. They didn't know how to include it. And even when the institution was rehung after 2000, this work didn't find its way into the galleries. I think now it's there, but it's in a way symbolic of of the change that has taken place. And I think also in most museums of modern art, there'd been a narrowing of focus, even compared to the 50s and 60s, so that the view was totally Eurocentric and for the most part bound to an even narrower concentration on the art of essentially the NATO countries. Anyway, at the end of the 80s, this straitjacket began to break open. And it first manifested itself, I think, at the Havana Biennale in Biennial in 1986 and in other biennales and major exhibitions across the world in the 1890s. Um, In 1989, uh, Jean-Hubert Martin presented an exhibition that brought together acclaimed artists from Europe and the Americas, with artists working in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia, including examples of uh, native artists, such as Aboriginal artists from Australia. And the show, which was called uh, Les Magiciens de la Terre, here you see Richard Long on the wall behind, and then an Aboriginal sand painting on the floor. Um, It was widely criticized by some more conservative voices, partly because it was seen as elevating art that was unworthy of consideration at the same level as the Western masters. And one has to say it was almost entirely men, so they were masters. Um, and also, it was criticised from the other side by those who thought that Jean-Hubert was exo- exoticizing, a bit like Gauguin going to Tahiti, I mean, exoticising uh, the other So it was a very controversial exhibition. And I just want to say something briefly now about how these changes affected the Tate because in 1990 we introduced a policy of changing the displays of the collection every year. Um, The arrangement of the collection remained broadly chronological but it was occasionally broken to show art of different periods in a single room and to expose the continuities that existed across decades or centuries, and occasionally broken also by rooms that were focused on one artist shown in depth, part of that um, experience idea that I uh, referred to earlier. And the purpose really was to show, in the words of the poet and the essayist T.S. Eliot, that our reading of the past should be altered by the present, as much as the present is directed by the past. And this new display was um, accompanied by another very significant change directed at the general visitor, the introduction of some sense of context by placing short texts as an introduction to each room with captions beside each work of art. So you visit museums across the world today and of course you see introductory texts and you see captions. But actually at the time, we're only talking about 30 years ago, it was revolutionary and indeed strongly opposed by quite a number of the curators in the institution. And we had to insist that there should be some essential information. In 2000, with the opening of Tate Modern, the opportunity was taken of a fresh start in a new building to reconfigure the displays of the 20th century in a series of non-chronological themes structured according to the traditional subjects of the French Academy. Here we have a slide of um, Tate Modern as it was in 2000, where on the left you see Richard Long with a stone sculpture and a wall piece, and on the right um, Monet. So in 2000, we took four non-chronological themes of Tate Modern, the body, still life, landscape, and history painting. And this was the opening room in the landscape section. And these, these themes brought together of artists of different periods whose work was exploring common issues to show that history doesn't run in a single river, but is rather composed of many histories running and intermingling quite so much like a single river, but more like a river delta. So these elements come together. Here's another view in of uh, Mario Maert's installation um, in 2000. And then the third iteration of this presentation of the collection at the Tate was in 2016, when we opened, as uh, Eugene referred to, the opening of the extension of Tate Modern. Um, and we decided really to take four different approaches to the history of modern art since 1900. Four attitudes that artists have adopted in developing their practice. artist and society, examining the relationship between artists dealing with the social and the political. Uh, The second theme was in the studio, examining art that is a personal reflection on the themes of the body and abstraction. That is to say, art that is very much made by an artist working in the studio, reflecting on some of the traditional issues within art. The third section was uh, materials and objects, where processes and materials are left, um, are central somehow to the artist's practice. And here's an example um, of uh, Romanian artist Anna Lupac. Um, These works are made not in the studio, but in response to the materials with which she's surrounded. And then finally, media networks, where artists work with images and the means of reproduction and communication, often in in mass media. So you have these four very different themes. And those are the themes that if you go to Tate Mon today, you will still see present in the displays. And of course, one of the other big changes during this period was the fact that the Tate had acquired many more works by women, And so it became possible also to do a display like this of work by Louise Bourgeois, which certainly would not have been possible um, 30 years earlier. So that's, in a way, what curators have been doing with museums, slowly evolving the way in which they think about art and present it to a public. But, of course, there's been a big impact made by the activity of artists on the way in which museums think about their collections and use them. And this really began in the late 60s, where there was really a profound change in the relationship between artists and museums. Artists were not only working in the studio, but they found themselves working directly in commercial gallery spaces, temporary exhibitions and biennales, and eventually also directly in museums themselves. So curators who had previously visited a studio to select work were obliged to become producers, Curators were no longer simply looking at images and selecting, I like that, I like that, and so on, and making, it, making an exhibition. They had to actually work alongside artists in the production of work. That, that might involve them in helping to find materials or technicians, and they were involved in the realisation of the work. So it's a fundamental change for, for curators. No longer were they distant arbiters. They were, in a way, co-conspirators. And I think that this change reflected a desire on the part of artists to work in space and to create environments rather than simply to hang a work on a wall or place it on a pedestal. Um, initially, as in exhibitions like this one, um, When Attitudes Become Form, which was a groundbreaking exhibition conceived by Harold Zemann at the Kunsthalle Bern in 1969, Artists simply installed sculptural objects in free space. And Mazeman invited each of the artists to come. And I can remember actually being involved in exhibitions of this kind. And artists would come in and more or less kind of camp on a particular spot where they wanted to install their work, sort of squatter's rights in a way. But then they began to start making work that was very specifically connected with the space in which they were exhibiting. And this is a view, photograph of Richard Serra working at the Castelli Gallery, commercial gallery in 1969, making a piece called Splashing, which was installed in the Castelli Gallery. And this is how it appears now in a museum in Tilburg in the Netherlands, also made by Serra but installed in the 1990s, late 1990s. And there was a preference, I think, for artists for making these kinds of works in former industrial spaces. As you see here, this is a former textile factory, generating a new generation of rough museum space with the opening of the first of them, really, was the museum known as the Hallen für Kunst in Schaffhausen in Switzerland in 1982. And here you see an installation that was made by Joseph Boyce in this, again, a former textile factory. And then the next iteration was uh, the what's now called the Geffen Contemporary, the Temporary Contemporary, as it was originally called, in Los Angeles in a former police garage, which opened in 1987. It was, it was converted by Frank Gehry, the architect. And then eventually, much later... Some of you may have visited Deer Beacon outside of New York in a former cereal factory on the Hudson River. So this kind of practice, working in industrial buildings, then began to be picked up by museums like the Tate. So in the early 1990s, the Tate invited Richard Serra to make an installation in these divine galleries at what is now Tate Britain, within the Tate Gallery. And he chose to install these two forged steel blocks um, that had been made specially for that space. And the relationship between them was very carefully worked out by him. Um, So Richard, there were a series of shows in this space. Richard Long made an installation. Richard Serra, Per Kirkeby made an installation here um, in 1998. Rebecca Horn made an installation in these spaces in 1994. And it was these kind of installations that really partly encouraged the Tate to think about taking on the Bankside Power Station, which you saw in the earlier slide, and converting it to be a museum uh, for showing the collection, but also for showing installations and for showing um, new art. And this slide um, shows you the Bankside Power Station Um, Initial Proposal by Herzog and This image, um, this drawing, shows you running from left to right, the Turbine Hall in yellow, um, and an entrance space um, behind, at the top of the slide, the chimney. So right from the outset, they had this idea of keeping the Turbine Hall as an exhibition space. Several other architects who made proposals for the conversion of Bankside Power Station, cut the turbine hall into gallery spaces, um, and built and and said leaving it empty was a waste of space. Herzog and Muran recognized, as did Renzo Piano in the competition entry, that, that space had potential for showing art. And indeed, in their first installation, in their first submission, initial competition submission. Herzog de presented this image, which shows in the foreground, uh, and this was in 1994, it shows in the foreground Rachel Whiteread's house, which had won the Turner Prize in 1993, which was an installation that she had made in East London, where she had taken a whole house and cast it in concrete. And Herzog de Maron were proposing in a way that this house should be brought to the Turbine Hall and installed in the Turbine, I think not literally, but they were trying to evoke something. And of course, that space has become very much a celebrated space for showing artists like Bruce Nauman, Juan Munoz, Ai Weiwei's Sunflower Seeds, um, referred to earlier. And each of those installations has shown a very different aspect of that space. And each of those spaces has shown, has given the visitor a very different experience in their own body as they come into the space, whether it's for the empty space left by Bruce Nauman, but filled with sound, sound of his voice, recorded texts, or whether it's the experience of, not too many people were able to do it, but to walk onto the sunflower seeds. It was a very, very different kind of experience. So that's one kind of reaction of artists to museums. That is to say, thinking about their own work in space. Um, In 1970, the Rhode Island School of Design invited Andy Warhol to make an exhibition using objects selected from the permanent collection. Many of them taken from storage and most of them not on view for many decades. The exhibition was called Raid the Icebox, and it highlighted the relationship between contemporary artists and collections to produce an insight on the past that was very, very different from a conventional curatorial view. So that's an artist responding to a collection. And here's another example, Um, the Belgian artist Marcel Broders, who reflected on the archival character of museums in his Museum of Eagles, as he called it. It was a collection of images of eagles found in works of art and in objects in museums. And it was shown uh, as here at the Documenta exhibition in 1972. So such projects, exposing and disrupting the conventions of museums, have themselves almost become a convention. With countless museums, from the National Gallery in London to the smallest local museum inviting artists to comment on the collections the forces and the patrons who created them, and the power relationships inherent in museums. Again, it's become so conventional that artists are invited to do this that we forget that it's only in the last 20 or 30 years that artists have become partners in this way. And it was also in the 60s and 70s that performance conceived by artists, often with their peers in dance, such as Merth Cunningham or music, such as Charlemagne Palestine or Steve Reich, music and performance began to manifest themselves in museums. In the last decade, a new generation of performers and filmmakers, like Michael Clarke, seen here again in the Turbine Hall, has sought to use the gallery and museum space for non-cinematic and non-proscenium forms of performance. And in the second phase of Tate Modern, there was an opportunity to use the former industrial oil tanks to create a raw space in which to commission and show such work. Very few museums could offer such a wide repertoire of spaces that can both stimulate and respond to artists' needs. So you have change on the view of part of curators in the way they show the collection. You have artists being invited either to make work or to respond to the collection. And then the third big change, I think, in the last 20 years has been the behaviour and the expectation of audiences in museums. And for me, this first became evident in the public response to this work by Olafur Eliasson, his weather project in the Turbine Hall in Tate Modern in 2003. Whatever the intentions of Eliasson in creating a site-specific work in a former industrial building, the public simply took over the space and used it as an arena for its own interpretation and experience. So the work gained an unanticipated, performative character. And similar unprogrammed responses were prompted by Doris Salcedo's Shibboleth and by Carsten Huller's Test Site I showed you an image at the beginning of Doris Salcedo, but this is it in extent, you know, in a more extensive view. But the public response to this literally crack in the floor of the turbine hall at Tate Modern was really quite extraordinary, and the turbine hall therefore has become a new kind of interactive space within the museum. It's not a gallery, nor a space for study or research, or even commerce. It's rather a space for social interaction in the presence of art. There you see Carsten Hüller's slides, Test Site, or the Ai Wei in 2011. And a very different kind of public engagement was clearly at play when, at about the same time, in roughly about 2000, we introduced comment cards at the exit to the Turner Prize, exhibitions inviting visitors to leave their views in response to the question what do you think? With an encouragement not just what do you think but also to judge for yourself. And this opportunity to to express a view and to comment on the views of others prefigured the kind of online debate that is now commonplace in the wider world but is still rather rarely a feature of museum experience. So both of these phenomena an apparent yearning for the experiential in a museum and an enthusiasm for a more participative, less passive relationship with art and with the judgments of curators reflect changes in wider society. In particular, they reflect a willingness to challenge, to exchange views and to be a participant through social media and other digital platforms. So how do museums react to these this new appetite, in these new forms of exhibition and debate, discussion and dialogue, where debate, discussion and dialogue prevail rather than simply instruction. And can we respond without abandoning the commitment to the more traditional curatorial endeavour and scholarship that is present in conventional exhibitions? I've already mentioned the tank spaces at Tate Modern, which opened for a season in 2012-13, and with the site of a series of installations, performances, conferences, and events, including dance by Anna Teresa de Tiersmacher. Here you see the tank spaces, and here in a performance by Anna Teresa. Films by Aldo Tambellini, or an installation, for instance, here an installation of a film piece by William Kentridge, And this year, Joan Jonas has performed in these spaces as part of her major retrospective. And you see these kinds of spaces being created in museums now in other cities. MoMA uh, will open a new building, uh, I think, next year or the year after, which will include what they call a grey box, which is designed for performance. And both institutions are also presenting performance works in the main spaces within the museum, with MoMA showing Marina Abramovich's The Artist is Present in 2010 and Tate presenting Tino Segal's These Associations in the Turbine Hall in 2012. And both works, Dury Abramovich and Segal, were characterised by the direct engagement of the audience as participants in the work. Tate and MoMA both now have curators with responsibility for performance art, and both are now engaged in historical research and on the task of representing historic performance works. And this new respect for performance has also encouraged Tate to develop a form of commission that occupies a new space, the virtual. Since 2012, with the support of BMW, Tate has been commissioning a series of performance works under the title Performance Room that are presented through live web broadcasts with no audience present, but thousands viewing across the world in real time. This is the first time that performance work has been commissioned purely for the online space, but each performance is often followed by live interviews in which questions are taken from the viewers who email in from different time zones. So you can have essentially a worldwide conversation about something that has happened half an hour earlier, based in London, but with participants in Latin America, in Asia, in Africa. And amongst the performers have been Jerome Bell, Joan Jonas, um, here, Callie Spooner, and Ragnar Kjartensen. However, beyond the space of the buildings and the range of program, an even greater challenge is to recognize that the museum is increasingly, not simply a space for observation, instruction and experience, but also one for personal development and learning through participation. The museum has become a place for discussion, debate and dialogue, more like a university. Digital communication allows us to enrich this experience through the use of smartphones used before, during, and after a visit. And the public fascination with TED-style lectures and debate online is one indication of the new appetite for this kind of more remote engagement. So, you know, we all have our websites, we all use them very, very directly to communicate with our audiences. I think that these new forms of communication will require new approaches, new kinds of publication, and new quiet spaces within the institution for listening and response. Spaces that are not the galleries, that are not the social spaces as such, but places where you can look at a book, look at a screen, talk to someone, engage online. And at Tate Britain, we created a new digital studio to complement the more conventional workshop spaces. We we all now have education workshop spaces. We now have a digital studio at Tate Britain. At Tate Bottom, we now have one whole floor of the new buildings devoted to what is called Tate Exchange in a framework of program that allows for different possibilities in learning, debate and creation. Of course, from their inception, museums offered lectures, courses, seminars, and publications. But what few have so far embraced is the principle of continuing personal development through open exchange that was established so brilliantly by a man called Michael Young when he created the Open University in Britain in 1969. Today, the Open University which admits students with minimum or no qualifications, has more than 250,000 students, including 50,000 from abroad. Its teaching was conducted initially through broadcast television and correspondence, and occasional seminars in universities, but much of its teaching now is online, coupled with intensive seminar and summer schools. So this kind of open exchange is very different from the pattern of formal instruction, in which experts debate propositions with their peers and pass on accumulated knowledge to the next generation. And it's closer, I think, to the spirit of what one might call commonwealth, a term first used in about 1470 to describe a form of government in which the whole people have a voice or an interest. Later, of course, in England, it was associated with Oliver Cromwell. And the brief period of republicanism and of course now the word commonwealth has been adopted to cover a group of countries that were part of the colonial empire of the united kingdom Um, however in its original meaning of governance in the interests of everyone i think the idea of commonwealth has particular significance for museums at this moment In Britain, we're fortunate in having created a structure of national museums based on the ideals of the British Museum in which a group of independent trustees is appointed by the nation to promote public understanding of the works and the collections, as well as the corpus of knowledge associated with them. And obviously the structure of um, the National Gallery here in Singapore follows that model. In the 19th century, the National Gallery was placed very deliberately at the center of the city, on the north side of the newly created um, Trafalgar Square. You forget that somehow this was once contemporary. You know, it's been there it's in all our minds as having always been there, but it only came in the 1840s, 1850s. And it was placed, the National Gallery was put on Trafalgar Square right in the center of the city so that it could be accessible to people of all classes and from all parts of the city. And in the 1840s and 50s, debates in Parliament, which still make very, very interesting reading and relevant reading today, stressed the the importance of making the great works in the collection available to all social classes. And now I would argue that the advent of a digital age obliges us to respond to the needs and expectations of our audiences in new ways. So what might this new commonwealth entail for museums and for their relationship with their many different publics? The wealth that we might all share is founded on the accumulation of of the objects in our collections, animated by the knowledge and the flair of our curators. It extends to the capital of our buildings, which provides safe spaces for congregation and debate, And in a world that is increasingly wary of the misuse of power, museums remain high on any list of trusted institutions. But how can we give effect to the common in Commonwealth, the spirit of belonging to the community as a whole and free to be used by everyone? An important step must be to recognise that knowledge about the collections is not confined to the experts who work within the institutions. In recent years, we've become more open to collaboration with university colleagues. I mean, for many, many years, there was a very sharp distinction between museum curators and academics, without as much discussion between them as you would think would be natural. So we've become better at that kind of conversation, and more and more people work first in museums and then in academia or the other way around. But in future, I think we're going to have to appeal for expertise and knowledge to the wider community. Almost, if you like, an equivalent of a research equivalent of crowdfunding. Some years ago, the Tate invited the public to help us identify subjects within the body of 30,000 drawings by Turner, which are held in the Tate. Now, curators have been looking at these drawings, trying to identify the subjects for many, many years. We put out all the images online and within a very short space of time, they'd been identified by members of the public who recognised a piece of landscape as actually just down the road from them where they lived. I mean, astonishing. So suddenly, by involving the public in that way, we found ourselves with a great body of knowledge that could never have been gained by curators working alone. That's given us a greater definition to our understanding of Turner's methods and travels, but it's also given a greater sense of engagement and ownership to our public. More recently, we appealed for help identifying buildings in the same way, buildings and landscapes taken over a 20-year period by the artist John Piper. And I think we need to be more provocative and take greater risk in engaging partners and individuals. And if we bring people in from disciplines that do not share our languages or our assumptions, we'll have to address better questions about the nature of art and its role in society, rather than confining ourselves to inquiries about the history and practice of art. In 2016, as uh, Eugene referred to, the opening of the extension of Tate Modern, we embarked on a new public programme related to, but independent of the cycle of exhibitions and displays of the collection. And the purpose of Tate Exchange, on that one floor of the new building, is to examine the role of the visual arts within the wider social and economic framework of society. We want to explore in depth some of the bigger questions and themes of our age. What does it mean to live in cities? What are the pressures and conditions created by migration? Issues of sexual and social identity, the consequences of globalism. These are the big issues of our time and they shouldn't be absent from museums. We see art as a catalyst for a program of debate, discussion and creation that explores a given theme over the duration of an academic year. In the first year, the theme was itself exchange, in the second year, production. And building on the experience of the existing young people's group, Tate Collectives, Tate Exchange is led each year by an artist who sets the theme. It brings together artists, writers, performers, thinkers from different disciplines to create a program that includes conventional lectures, seminars and workshops but also the creation of clusters and microsites through which groups can work on particular topics. And crucial to this whole process, which may be led by an artist working with curators, is that we also work with associates, as they're called. And these are organizations that are not museum professionals. They work in the fields of health, social welfare, young people, homelessness, not just in London, but also in other places across the country. And they each take responsibility for programming specific sessions and workshops, bring their own perspective onto a theme, relating it closely to the visual arts and reaching out into the collections that are on view in the galleries or the experiences of artists to explore the ideas and challenges within the subject. So, in conclusion, really, this slide reminds you that at the end of the day, museums are about objects, of course. They're about history, they're about reinterpretation, but they are very, very much about people. I think we have to respond to the challenges and the opportunities of the digital age to strengthen visual understanding and visual literacy. People spend so much time on screens that visual literacy... How you read an image has become a really crucial part of anyone's education. I'm always going to want to argue for the value of the one-to-one encounter with a work of art, the intimate engagement that you can have with a work of art in a museum. However, if the museum is to flourish in the 21st century, it cannot afford to be a place of retreat from society. It must stimulate, provoke, and engage in addition to offering a place for contemplation or indeed consolation. The museum must champion art in all its manifestations by arguing for the deep significance of the visual to our understanding of ourselves, to our understanding of each other, and to our understanding of the history and the future of our community and society. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much for that, Sir Nicholas. Um, We now have about 20 minutes or so for some questions and discussion. Hi, my name is Lorraine, and over the last uh, three months, I've had the pleasure of uh, visiting the Tate about four times and totally enjoyed myself. Um, I actually wanted to ask you, because I read um, an article um, in which you commented that the Tate had been well-loved when you first joined the Tate, but it wasn't well-respected and I was very intrigued by your observation. So I wanted to hear your thoughts behind making that distinction at the time.
0: Um, I think at the time I was very much affected by the fact that I was working quite closely with artists and I felt that the Tate ought to be their natural home, that they should feel very engaged with the Tate and its programs. And I think at the time they were not. I can't promise you that they are now, but they're probably a little bit more engaged than they were. I think the museum at the time didn't really feel as though it had a real sense of purpose. It was doing some very, very good things, but it wasn't quite coherent in the way that I felt it could be and should be, and I think artists wanted it to be. But I was much younger and more idealistic (laughs) than I am now.
2: Hi, thank you, Sister Rata. It was an incredibly edifying talk they have given, and I'm pretty sure everyone here really, really appreciates it. Well, my name is Alphonse, and actually I have a question with regards to the kind of conversation and dialogue that you have mentioned of the Tate facilitating. To what extent do you feel that the museum is a public functionary or ombudsman in that respect when it comes to further facilitating conversations regarding the pertinent issues of our time. And, you know, with regards to the fact that museums are rarely the kind of neutral space that it purports to be for a lot of institutions we have. And of course, naturally, there would be a lot of failure in identifying the biases that can sit through the dialogue, and I was just wondering what to take on how that kind of bias can be better addressed.
0: So I don't think it's an easy task for a museum to take on this kind of responsibility. Because when you open to debate, you can't always be sure who's going to want to take part in that debate and how they want to use that platform. So the institution has to begin to gain the skills that are required to really provide a platform that may be controversial, but also manages to reflect many different points of view. So inevitably, the museum, which especially when it's a state museum, in a certain sense represents the establishment, will find itself in circumstances where people want to use that platform for their own purposes to make a point. And it's a question of how far you can go in that respect. So we've had people at the Tate criticising the Tate for taking sponsorship from certain companies. I think you have to allow that debate to take place. And you have to trust people to use that opportunity responsibly.
3: So when I go to the beach and I lie on the beach and I see the sun and I lie down and I stare at the sun. Or I see a big hole that a child has dug and I stare down it and maybe I take a pebble or I go to the Tate Modern, uh, I take a seed, (laughs) Um, I stick my head down the crack and I look down and I look up at the sun. And I think I go for the same reason. I go to the beach for the same reason as I go to the Turbine Hall, maybe. And I guess my question is around the role of the forum and the surprise that people have used space in that museum space. And in hindsight, it's easy to say, well, it's easy to see that people would interact with the Tate Modern in that way. Maybe in the same way that they use a visit to the beach. But but what is still surprising you? Does it still surprise you how people continue to use not just the space within the Tate buildings, but in museums around the world? That maybe, like me, they respond to it possibly in a way that they do when they go to a beach? Well,
0: you're clearly going to a very special beach.
3: <laughs> maybe, maybe. Well, no, there's, um, there, What with sunshine, yes, and pebbles and holes.
0: Well, I think the experience in the Turbine Hall, it's a different kind of concentrated experience. I mean, you go into a museum in part because you're also wanting to engage with a particular phenomenon or a representation or an idea, and i think what the museum does is it helps to focus you on that i'm not saying you can't be focused on a beach or you can't you can be focused of course on a different kind of experience if you're standing on a mountaintop or on a you know in a landscape but i think the museum also brings you into contact with someone else's interpretation of the same idea or concept that you're thinking about. So you then come into dialogue with another sentient human being. They may be alive or not, but it's that process of connecting you with an observation about the world by another individual that is really the the pivot, I think, of the museum experience.
2: Uh, Good morning, thank you so much for um, your talk today. It's been really interesting. Um, you were talking a lot about the fact that museums need to um, adapt and change and uh, become places that are much more relevant um, and are creating more kind of relevant experiences, um, less passive um, engagement for the audience. Um, why is that? What are the barriers to um, that actually happening behind the scenes in museums? What do we not see? What what are the um, what are the issues that are stopping museums and gallery spaces from from providing
0: that? Lack of practice at doing it. I mean, probably too many institutions thinking that learning and education only takes place in rooms like this one, in forums like this one, where I'm sitting on a stage and you're all sitting, waiting for those pearls of wisdom to come from my lips. I mean, I think um, seminar and debate and discussion is a much better way of learning, probably, than lectures. I mean look I'm not deriding knowledge and expertise and that should be shared but I think it's it's about overcoming fear I mean I think that specialists are always slightly nervous about sharing their specialist enthusiasms and knowledge and interests with non-experts there's always this sense that maybe you're going to be dumbing down in some form rather than pulling up so I think those are the considerations really do you think I mean, you have to enough? remember, I mean, you know, 30, 40 years ago, most museums didn't have a... I mean, lecture lecture halls were part of museum experience, but they they didn't have education or learning departments. The first learning department in the Tate was established in 1970. I would say 50 years ago. I'm surprised it was as recent as that. So following on from that,
1: how do you think um, Tate Exchange has been... Um developing how, since its inception, given the thinking and the expectations you had for it?
0: It hasn't yet quite permeated sufficiently into the museum, into the galleries. It still tends to be a separate space, a separate floor, inhabited for a week by a group of people who then do come out to some degree. Um, I think it's been enormously important experience for those associated organizations who then make a link back into their own communities and then bring people to the Tate. So that has been very significant and important, but it probably hasn't yet changed the way in which the museum thinks quite sufficiently. Uh, we need probably to find a way of manifesting in the galleries some of the thinking that is taking place in the space that is um, Tate Exchange.
1: Hi, thanks very much. For that. That's really interesting. I just wondered whether following on from the last couple of questions in a way, um, um, to have your response to the criticism that was uh, um, put uh, uh, at the, uh, at the uh, entrance to lots of museums uh, in, the, in, in the 80s and 90s of the critique of the White Cube in a way of museums setting themselves aside, aside from, apart from society. Um, you've already said that yes, there's still a function in terms of providing that particular context focus in a particular way, um, but Coming back to this point about the link with society as a whole and the efforts that you're making um, with uh, with take exchange and other forms, of that, um, is there a fundamental contradiction in sense with the um, with the, uh, the the gallery, or the museum um, being this box um, that uh, isn't um, necessarily open to the outside, um, or is it possible through institutional engineering um, of the, and the social engagement to, uh, to, to overcome that. I mean, I, obviously you're sort of pointing in that direction, but there seems to be a, a contradiction there to, to an extent, partly to do with inheritance of history, that's what people expect, but also behaviour as well.
0: I think I would argue that, um, I mean, the museum is a box. I mean, it's a site. It's a, it's a series of connected spaces. You want to make that box as permeable as possible with as many entrances metaphorically as you can achieve. And you want to make that that, the process of crossing the threshold as unintimidating as you can. I mean, libraries on the whole are much better at doing that than museums. I think within the box, You want a variety of experiences. You want the sense of debate and dialogue and discussion. I think you probably also want to go into a quiet corner and contemplate something that may indeed be in a white box. So I think it's about having a greater variety of experience within the museum than probably was conventional that that I'm seeking or have been seeking to achieve. Museums obviously also can reach out they don't always have to be within their own box they can be working in other sites and many many other museums do so I think you know there are not, there are many different ways of working um, but the principal ambition has to be to maintain the level of dis- discussion and debate and not throw away in any sense that sense of expertise but to make it as approachable as you possibly can
2: Hello, uh, my name is Christina. Um, it's wonderful to listen to all of the proliferation of, um, activities and new spaces and forms in which one can actually enjoy a museum these days. But what I'm struck with at the end of it is, is it possible or even desirable to try to be all things to all people?
0: No, I don't think you can be all things to all people, um, but what you can offer is a number of discrete experiences and people who are all different will respond in different ways. I'm not suggesting that the museum shouldn't be telling stories. They will tell stories and some of those stories will be more interesting to some people than others. And I don't think, I mean I do think the museum has to have, does still have to have a point of view. And I think you achieve that by the selection of exhibitions, artists that you decide to show, the way in which you show them. And it's by doing that with conviction that you have, you create that sense of purpose that I think I was referring to rather pejoratively as having been absent um, in the Tate um, at a certain moment. But I think I was aiming high (laughs) when I said that.
3: Um, I hope this is not a silly question. I come from Indonesia and um, I've spent four years in Singapore. So most of, I mean, all of my contemporary art knowledge has been received in Singapore, which I'm very grateful of. But I haven't had the privilege to um, visit any of the Tate. I haven't had privilege to view any of the art in Europe or US or anywhere outside Singapore. So the concept of presenting art outside of the chronological presentation is really foreign for me. So I'm wondering, maybe you can explain more about why do we have to do that and how is that beneficial and how can we who are conditioned to view art chronologically would benefit from that? Thank you.
0: So I think when you talk to artists about what influences them in making their work, if you're trying to understand that work, um, they very, very rarely tell you that the thing that influenced them most was the artists who were working 20 years earlier than them or 30 years earlier than them or even 50 years earlier than them. They are like magpies. They choose from different places in the history of art and different experiences of the world around them to come together in the art that they form. So I think that obviously you can do it well or you can do it badly but to try and evoke that kind of sense that art isn't just a conveyor belt beginning in a certain moment and everyone stands on the achievements of the previous generation or generations before. They take from all over and you want to give that sense of richness to the installation. I think it's also true that there are many other places where you can get you, from which you can obtain chronology and a sense of chronology. Books are very good for that because one page follows another. And I think also, if you think about the way in which people gather information together now, picking off websites all over, I'm sure you do it. You know, you take information from many, many different places and you somehow combine it and, you know, make a new synthesis. I think that's what museums are trying to do. You have been listening to the Padang Sessions from National Gallery Singapore. Follow us for updates and new episodes every month. And to learn more about our programmes, visit nationalgallery.sg. Our podcast team is Erica Lai, Kalisha Chia Kasim and Ashley Lim. The music you heard is composed by Javon Chandra. I'm Joyce Chung. Thanks for listening.